But as we think about Genesis 9 today, I have a question for you to consider. What are you worth? Yes, you. 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 And you. What are you worth? If you had to put a value on your life, what would it be? Well, you'd probably put more than the New Zealand government has put on your life. It was interesting. You can go online and you can see the value that governments put on people's lives. That's an interesting exercise. But if you had to put a price on your life, could you do it? And what would it be? You'll see a picture here of a guy standing on some uh, platform. You know, notice, notice there's leverage right in the middle so at the moment, you'll see it's, it's even. The amount of money on the right side there is even with, with how much he weighs. The point being is, how much are you worth? It's hard to even know where to start on that, by the way. Uh, you may be thinking of um, how some have valued human life in, in the darkest moments of human history. It's, it's really sad how during those dark moments of human history, they, they devalued human life. So, and, I'm, and I'm particularly referring to the slave trade, the, the human trafficking that, that used to go on in our world. And we look with shame to, to an era like that when a human being could be legally bought and sold and their, their worth was actually tied to the profit that they would yield for the, the person who bought them. In the mid-19th century, before slavery was abolished, a, a prime male field hand could be purchased for 1000 $100 at that day, which is roughly $30,000 in today's money. Other human beings, now that was a prime meal. Other human beings were bought and sold for far less money. And the reason I'm even bringing that up is because sometimes people read the Bible or they hear about the flood, they hear about God's judgment on the whole world and how he's he destroyed almost everybody on planet Earth except for eight people. And some people think that life was worthless to God. God didn't care about life. In fact, he's not just wiping out people. He's, he, he, he wiped out a lot of animals and plants and all sorts of other stuff in his creation. And so they think that because God destroyed everyone except Noah and his family. But God's commands to and his covenant with Noah here show the opposite, in fact, that God actually values life. He has a high value on life. We'll see why in a moment. But let's read God's word from Genesis chapter 9. Starting in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be uh, upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. 
As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That ends the the paragraph we're going to look at for today. As usual, we want to see that there's something that God wants us to know or do. And Here's the proposition that God wants you to produce and protect life. Because God is a God who who puts a high value on life, therefore He wants you to produce and protect life. Our first point, first main truth that we can see from this today is that people have the responsibility to produce and produce and preserve life on the earth. People have this responsibility to produce and preserve life on the earth. We'll see both of those points about the producing and preserving here. First of all, but notice God is the one who commissions mankind to produce life. And he says it twice. He says it in verse 1 and then down in verse 7. Notice again what he says in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Hopefully you've heard those words or something similar to that already in the book of Genesis. Because the text shows that Noah, in, in in a way, was the second Adam. In other words, he was blessed as God's image bearer here, and he's given the same commands that was given way back in the beginning of Genesis, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's it's restating that earlier commission given to Adam in chapter 1, verse 28. 
By the way, in both passages, the commission here is introduced by those same words. Notice what it says in verse 1, that God blessed. God blessed. What's, what's that all about? It's, it's bestowing this ability upon God's creatures here to be fruitful. In other words, you can't have children without God's blessing. If you don't have children, that's because God has closed the womb. If you have children, it's because of God's blessing. He is enabling you to bear fruit. And so my friends, children, the Bible says, should be considered a blessing from God. It's sad we live in a much of the Western world, we, just being the way it is, we live in a culture, New Zealand part of that Western world, where we're actually in population decline. You realize that? We're, we're not even reproducing ourselves. We are not being fruitful and multiplying. We are, we're actually subtracting. Because most families, uh, when you average them all out, it's something like only 1.2 children per family. So they're not obeying the command of God. They're not producing life because we don't value life the way God does. The problem. So God commissioned mankind to produce life. It shows his, his value on life. And number two, God instructs mankind then to protect life. To protect life. And he talks about how he, he puts, in verse 2, he put the fear of, of man into the animals. Well, they apparently didn't have that uh, pre-flood. So... Noah could have, you know, walked around, you know, playing with dinosaurs, for example, because the dinosaurs didn't fear man, the lions didn't fear man, the, the hippopotamus didn't fear man, the snakes didn't fear man, and so they, they could intermingle with each other without that. And so the parallels with the beginning of Genesis are, are continuing on here. God provided Noah and his descendants with food, but now also he, he opened the animal world to them for food. What was life like before the flood? God said they could, they could eat of the fruit of the trees and the seeds and the, the nuts and the, the plants. But now mankind now lived with the reality of killing. And so the animal world would be afraid of human beings. But notice within the provision, the provision being every moving thing, God says, there's also a prohibition. Because God says only flesh with its life, that is its blood, you shall not eat. So now everything is, is available for food, but notice the prohibition is don't eat and drink the life part of the animal that, that is that blood. So the point of the prohibition here is that people may eat flesh as long as it no longer has life in it. And the blood, of course, represented the life. And Leviticus says the, the life is in the blood. Of course, the point in Leviticus showing uh, the, the sacrifice, the importance of the sacrifice, uh, the sin required death. Wages of sin is death. And so the text is prohibiting not simply the consumption of blood, but rather the, 
the, the, that part of the pulsating lifeblood of the animal. In other words, humans are not to devour animals the way animals devour each other. Okay? And so a lot of people look, you know, they watch those nature shows. You go watch a documentary on TV, and you see some animal go, and, and they're chewing on an animal while it's still alive, and we say, Ew, that's disgusting, and so we should think that. That's the way, that's the way animals are. God says, don't do that. <laughs> right? Don't do that. Don't devour an animal way another animal might do that while the blood is pulsating in the flesh. And the reason for this is respect for life. It doesn't show respect to the animal. And beyond that, by the way, it's, it's respect for the one who gives the life. Of course, who's that? God is. God's the one who gives the life, the one who puts life in man as well as the animal. And so life is in the blood, and God's the, the giver of that life. And so disregard for the gift of life is really an affront then to the giver of life. You are insulting the one who is given the life. This divine prohibition against eating or drinking blood also prepared humanity for the precious blood that would be shed. Very precious blood. The, the, the blood of Jesus Christ was given as our great sacrifice for sin. Well, that's what the Bible says. Let me just make a few points. Number one, you don't have to be a vegetarian. <laughs> okay. I'll put a funny picture. I found this funny picture on the Internet of uh, somebody's made a, a face of a, of a human being out of vegetables. I didn't want to be insulting to vegetarians. There was plenty of insulting stuff on the Internet. But uh, it's, not, it's not a sin to be a vegetarian. That's the way people were before the flood. At least many of them were. But some people think they have to be a vegetarian because that's what the Bible says. No, the Bible doesn't say you have to be a vegetarian. You understand that? Or you don't have to be a vegan or, or something, something like that for, for religious or spiritual purposes. If you choose to do that, that's, that's your choice. But it... Uh, your conscience should not be bound by Scripture to be a vegetarian. Are we clear on that? What do we see God doing here? God permits meat eating. He says that you can eat meat. And I've put a few funny uh, funny things up here on the screen for you. It's um, The vegetables are crying out, eat meat, right? God says we can eat meat. It's okay to do so. By the way, that's... Notice it's all meat, and that includes pork, by the way. Those of you who love bacon, you, you, you love that truth, don't you? It's interesting, because I've met some Christians who think they can't eat pork. But notice it's, it's, how often did God have to say in those verses, all of these things, the, the fish and the livestock and the birds, all of it is available for you to eat. He's permitted to do so. And so it's important as we think about this, we need to be balanced. Be balanced, because think, think of the pendulum swings here that, that happen. Here's the first one. Some people undervalue animals. And so, and so you get sad cases. You, you, you can see lots of photos on the Internet of people undervaluing animals. They, animal cruelty is alive and well on planet Earth. 
Okay, just because we can eat the animals doesn't mean that we can abuse them. Cruelty is not acceptable. You understand that? That that's an example of undervaluing animals. And so uh, there are there are people who vegans and vegetarians and so forth who who think if you're a carnivore by eating meat, that is you 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 don't value the animal and the animal's life. Well, not necessarily. That's not the case. Uh, just because I go hunting and I shoot a deer doesn't mean I I don't value that deer. In fact, I I, I um, it, part of me die part of me in a way dies within me every time I shoot an animal. But at the same time, I also thank God for the, who is the giver of life. Every time I shoot an animal, thank God you gave me this animal. You gave me the ability to go shoot it and. And the, you've given me dominion over your creation. This is precious. One of your creatures here that you have made. And I don't, I don't take this lightly. So I, you want to seek for a quick death. You don't want cruelty. And you want to use the animal whom God has given you. You're a steward of his resources. So don't undervalue. But then you get some people like Hindus in India, for example, they... It's like they overvalue animals, and then people are starving to death, but yet you got all these animals walking around, right? And so they, they, it's like they worship them. Some people do. Well, there's an example of overvaluing them. They're not, they're not having the dominion over that animal that God has told them to have. So do you, do you see the, those are the two pendulum swings that, that people can have. Be balanced, Right? Don't be involved in animal cruelty. Don't be involved in worshiping animals, allowing people to starve to death, or doing all sorts of strange things people do these days. But be balanced. But we see in verses 5 and 6 that God prohibits the violation of life. Now, there's two parts to this particular section here. There's a divine reprisal for any violation of the law of blood. We see that in verse 5, where, where God says, uh, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then in verse 6 we see that the punishment for the shedding of human blood. So we're allowed to shed an animal's blood, but not human blood. In verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It's interesting those go together there, that they belong together is evident from the the mention of human life here in both verse 5 and 6. Notice there's, uh, God repeats a few words here. When he does that, he's emphasizing something to you. So he repeated those words, I will require. That's God speaking. I will require. So the structure of verse uh, uh, verse 5 is is governed by that verb and pronoun, I will require. So the whole emphasis here is put on the verb by that threefold repetition. I will require. The command not to kill is is reformulated to express God's absolute lordship over all things. He owns it all. It's His. He made it. He's the Creator. And so we thus learn here that mankind does not have unlimited power over life, 
just because God has unlimited power over life. Okay? You and I can't just go do what we want to do, however we want to do it. God's warnings in this section taught people to safeguard life, both in how we eat meat and in how they preserved human life on the earth. So God cares about the animals and He cares about human beings. And so by these teachings here, mankind would learn that law was necessary for the, for the stability of life in this new world. Wickedness could not go unchecked as it had before. Remember God said earlier how violence had filled the earth? He did something about that, and now he tells them, don't, don't be violent, basically. Now, it might again attain dimensions that nothing short of a flood could correct, and it seems like it has in many ways. But human government is one of the three institutions that God established. Remember the three institutions? We've already seen the first one in Genesis. It is the family. Family is the first institution God makes. Now we have God instituting and establishing human government. And we will see later, much later, God establishes the church. But notice human government here is instituted. Israel later had the laws against bloodshed and eating blood, more fully formulated in the uh, uh, later on at Mount Sinai covenant God made with, with Israel. God had all kinds of specific laws on how to treat animals, even what to do in the sacrifices. So God obviously cares about these animals. He cares about people as well. He, he had all sorts of, of uh, stipulations and rules and laws. How do you, what would happen even if an animal attacked a human being? What happened to Leviticus talks about what would happen if if you accidentally killed a baby in a mother's womb? Right? God has all sorts of things mentioned there, showing the value of life. God hates murder. Clearly, He hates that's murder. By the way, when it mentions the shedding of human blood, so why is it sin to murder? Look at verse six. Verse 6 tells you why murder is sin. It's because God made man in his own image. Mankind is made in God's image. Yes, it's corrupted, but it is still God's image here. And so since man's created in the image of God, and as such has immense, huge value because of that, and since the, the blood or the life of mankind is God's alone, then guess what? Here's the logical reasoning. To take human life is usurping God's sovereignty over life and death. That is God's authority, not man's. And so that, that's why it merits death. That's why it merits death. By the way, precisely because life is precious... The one who willfully takes another person's life, then notice what God says. Must suffer death at the hands of mankind. That is God's prescription. I know that's not popular in our world these days. Very unpopular. Most countries in the world do not have capital punishment. 
but uh, exacting retribution is not a personal matter here. Notice God says it is a society obligation. It's a society obligation. It is mankind's duty to deal with the offender, to put that offender to death. And by the way, you understand God forbids murder. Lest we're not clear here, let me be clear. What are we talking about? God forbids murder. Of course it includes, uh, you think of one person killing another person, but it's interesting, God even talked about animals killing people. God says the animals should be killed, any animal or fish, shark or whatever it is, (laughs) a hippopotamus or or a dog or whatever it is, if it kills a human being, God says that, that creature should be put to death. But now we got people going around today and saying, well, the shark couldn't help itself when it killed that, you know, that person because it looks like a seal or whatever, right? God says, put it to death. And of course, uh, I hope you believe that abortion is murder. We got people trying to redefine life these days and saying that, for example, life doesn't start until that human being that comes out of the womb doesn't start till then, but no, life begins at conception. So you take life that starts at conception and you, you, you kill it, you've, you've committed murder. We need to recognize this, we need to teach this, we need to believe this, and we need to, to uphold the value of life, the sanctity of life. Euthanasia is another issue before our government today that needs to be considered as murder. And so so we're murdering elderly people. We're murdering people whom we don't want anymore. We murder people who are suffering. And so we've, we've got an issue all the way from the cradle to the grave where, where the value of life is it's not high, it's devalued. Do you realize that suicide is also murder? You are not allowed to murder yourself. <laughs> right? And it doesn't matter if it's assisted or unassisted, it's still murder. Suicide is murder. And so now we have people saying, I have the right to my to do whatever I want to my own body. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're you are not the giver of your life. The creator is. God is. So we have to do what he wants. So how did God arrange to punish murderers then and, and see that justice was done and the law would be upheld? Well, we see here that God established human government. This is where it starts in the Bible. He's the one who establishes human government. You say, where do you see that? Well, according to verse 6, notice human government and capital punishment here are going together. By the way, capital punishment, if you're not familiar with that, that just means the execution of a murderer. But in verse 6, God says, if you shed man's blood, in other words, if, if someone murders... By man, it's, it's, it, this authority given to mankind through human government is to, is to execute the murderer. Why? Because that person is made in God's image. And some people ask, well, isn't capital punishment just an Old Testament issue? No, it's not an Old Testament issue. In fact, you can see Jesus backing that up in several places. And, uh, of course, Romans 
is uh, probably the most popular one that people would use in the New Testament, explaining that government carries a sword. And in, in Romans 13, when, when Romans 13 mentions the sword, it's talking about a weapon, an instrument that was used for killing. Government carries that sword, the ability and the power to execute. And God is the one who's given government, human government, the right to execute. So that, that sword there is the ability to execute a human being. So with that little background, look what uh, the Bible says here in the New Testament. Not just the Old. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer, or the wrongdoer. So notice that phrase, the government bears the sword. They don't bear it in vain, in an empty way. God-given authority to execute murderers. So government was established by God. Notice in verse 5, why did God do this? Well, if, if they had stayed in the Garden of Eden in paradise and had never sinned, there wouldn't be need for human government. But that's not what happened, because verse 5 talks about the human heart is evil. Because of the evil human heart, we need human government. That's why God does this. Because he, he says, notice what he says in verse 5. That for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. By the way, the fear of punishment can help to restrain potential lawbreakers. Does it always work? No, of course not. But you know, you know well, just as, just as I do, there are certain things we do. We obey the laws, even sometimes laws we think are unreasonable or stupid or whatever, you know, it doesn't make sense to you. We still do the, what the law says because we don't want to pay a fine or we don't want to go to jail, right? The law is there working. It's restraining potential lawbreakers because of the fear of punishment. By the way, with that though, you need to understand the law, while it can restrain, it can't actually regenerate a human heart. It can't change the human heart. Only God can change the human heart. But if individuals and families were allowed to deal with the offenders in their own way, what would our society be like? Then God would have to do what he, he did with Israel. He, he would have to set up cities of refuge. He had cities of refuge dotted around the land. And so when somebody accidentally murdered somebody, then they could flee to the city of refuge, and, and hopefully justice would be done. Because people would take the 
the law into their own hands. And if, you know, for example, if someone murdered your, or you think somebody murdered your sister, then it was your duty to go and then deal with that murderer. Society can't operate that way. It'd be in a state of chaos, a constant chaos, if everybody did what uh, you know they used to do in New Zealand, for example, what the Maoris used to do to each other, constantly attacking each other, and the murdering kept going and going and going and going and going and going and going. Because this village attacked that village, and then that, t- that village had to come in and attack this village back again, and so then they go back and attack, and then they attack them, and, and it was a never-ending process of avenging going on, just utter chaos. Of course, human government has many weaknesses and limitations, okay? The only only one that won't have any weaknesses and limitations is when King Jesus comes and he rules from Jerusalem. Then, Then it'll be perfect, okay? But government, please understand, is better than anarchy. Government is better than people going around doing whatever is right in their own eyes. That's chaos. That's anarchy. Many failures of human government, which, of course, coming from the the failures of a sinful human heart, must not blind us to the truth that government is nevertheless established by God, and God says we're to submit ourselves to human government. The authority of the state is from God, We must obey the human government, except in cases where human government goes beyond God's laws, goes beyond the Bible, and violates God's authority. Then we do, as the apostles said, it is better to obey God than man. Now, there's two great errors that people tend to make in regard to human government. We we love these pendulum swings. Just those pendulum swings and how we treat animals... Uh, well, it's the same. we got huge pendulum swings here. One is there's some people have a total disregard for the state. By state, I mean human government. Uh, they, they, they refuse to recognize its authority comes from God. And so, so you get people who are uh, consistently, continually expressing scorn toward public leaders. They're, they're flaunting laws that are perfectly valid laws, right? What, I mean, for example, I let me give you one, right? Our, our human government has made a law that you cannot drive and sit there on your, your smartphone texting. But how often do you see people doing that, flaunting the law, a perfectly valid law to keep people safe? Because they're distracted, and there's accidents all the time because people are going ahead texting, and then they smack the person in front of them. I saw someone doing that next to me while I was in traffic. I honked at her, told her off, and she's, she glares at me like, how dare you tell me what to, that I can't be on my phone? I would have taken a photo of her, but then the police would say, well, you're on your phone too, dude, so what, what are you doing? Anyway... Perfectly valid law that people flaunt all the time. Thousands of people every week in New Zealand are on their phones when they shouldn't be, right? That's, that's an example of disregard for the state. But the other pendulum swing is there's this, some people look at the state as, as their savior, right? You know, the, the human government's right up there with Jesus Christ. For some people, uh, too high of a regard 
believing that the government's going to solve all their problems. And so when you get that kind of a, an attitude, you end up with a nanny state. Too big of a government doing everything for you from the cradle to the grave. All right, I hope you can understand those two errors are not healthy. So what is a healthy view of human government or the state? Let me give you some propositions that I found from James Boyce. Uh, he says, number one, that the, the essential element of government is force. Force, for example, what does that look like? Uh, here's what it might look like in certain situations. Uh, let's say you're a businessman, and typical businessmen get, uh, they can get bogged down under a lot of government red tape. You know what government red tape is? Those of you from, from Asian countries, you don't have red tape, I'm sure, right? No, of course not. <laughs> That's where you get all this paperwork, and it's the, uh, and it's just the government gives you all these sort of things you got to do, and businesses just get bogged down, slowed down in uh, just all this stuff they have to do for the government, okay? And some people feel like they're just so weighed down, slowed down by all this that they just, they get so frustrated. Some people don't want to do all this government red tape. And they'd, imagine, imagine if you're a businessman and you just, you just decide, I'm not doing all that stuff for the government. I'm not filling out that paperwork. I'm not, I'm not doing my tax forms anymore. I'm not, no more. What do you think is going to happen? What's going to happen is the government, some form of the government, <laughs> is going to show up at your door and it's going to close your business down, and if you don't pay all that money back and do all, and fill out all this paperwork, you're going to end up in jail. You're going to end up in prison. That is a form of force. That's a form of force, right? The essential element of government is force. You need to understand that. God has given that ability to human government. Number two. Government cannot develop morality. Keyword there, develop. It can't cause someone to be good in the inner man. Can't. It can enforce laws, but it can't develop the morality, those, those penalties in the enforcement are actually expressing. For example, for example, did you know that prior to New Zealand and, and many other countries, by the way, uh, have have legalized abortion. You, did you know there wasn't that long ago that abortions were illegal? In New Zealand and many other countries in the world, it was actually illegal. In fact, I was just reading this morning, did you know there was Nazi doctors who were executed at Nuremberg for doing that very thing, for killing disabled babies? How far have we come since World War II? Those doctors were executed, and now we got it's, it's just totally illegal now. But anyway, nevertheless, even though it used to be illegal, abortions were still performed. Why was that? Because you, government can't develop morality. That, that person is wicked in their heart. That's why they go and they, they, they abort and murder their baby. So, illegality did not ensure the preservation of human life. At best, government will express 
in laws and enforced by its inherent power, this sense of morality that already present in the citizens. But the morality itself must come from another source. So the only thing that will reduce or then eliminate abortion there is is the citizens have to be deeply convicted in their heart that abortion of babies is murder and that murder is intolerable. That's the only way New Zealand is is ever going to to get back to God's ways. It's the only way. The government can't develop morality. And number three, a healthy government needs a healthy citizenry. The citizens need to be moral, in other words, to have a healthy government. So if government can't produce morality, it must be provided with morality from a religious source then. Has to come from that. Comes from God, doesn't it? So if it does not have this element among its people, then government itself is going to be corrupt and and, and it's just going to be a tyrant. And in a declining culture like ours, in this kind of moral environment that we live in, uh, the greatest need, by the way, is not for more laws. More laws is not, you understand, is not going to change people's hearts. It's not going to change their spiritual sensitivity, not for an unbeliever. But what we need is we need the believers of our country to confess their sins, to bow their knee to King Jesus, to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's what we can do. And then number four. Since the state has been established by God, it is therefore responsible to God. We need to understand this. And by the way, this is true whether or not the state exists in, in a, a good state or a spiritual, moral state. It, it doesn't matter what its state is, its moral conditions. It's still responsible to God. If you go back to our text here in Genesis, we note that it's God who established the state in his covenant with Noah. It's not Noah. It's not the church. It's God establishing human government. And so this means, on one hand, it means that the state has certainly divine, ordained authority over us. But it also means the state is under God's authority and cannot justly or safely disregard His law or His divinely given function. Hopefully it it can, to a certain extent, can still function as God designed it, and it it does. But we need to recognize that it's responsible to God. So those are just some healthy things to consider about human government. If you understand those, it will help you live in this fallen world. But there's a second main truth we see here. As we see this God who values life, look what he does in verses 8 through 17. We see that God promises now to preserve his creation. See, he doesn't just care about the human beings. He cares about all of his creation. And so the second half of this this passage here records the, the making of this unconditional covenant 
what's God doing? God is ensuring that there's not going to be another watery judgment like the great flood. It's not going to happen again. Not, not this way. So this covenant does not depend on the human obedience to God's laws or human laws. Doesn't, that's not what's required. But what men and women's compliance with the laws will then allow them to live and, and enjoy the covenant that God has made. But notice it's an everlasting covenant. Verses 8-11, through 11, God promises here to preserve life. Notice verse 9. Uh, well, verse 8, God, who's God speaking to? Notice God said to Noah and his sons here. So there's this ongoing relationship and covenant here. He says, Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So this is going all the way down to us even today and beyond us. And then notice it's not just human beings, because verse 10 says every living creature is included here in this covenant. God promises to preserve all life. And so in this section, the nature and the extent of the covenant here is explained. God instituted this covenant here as a gracious provision of protection for all of His creation. Very gracious. He didn't have to do this. And that's why it's grace. And so the, the basic point of the covenant is that God's giving assurance here that He's going to do what He said He was going to do, what He wanted to, to have done. And how does how do we know that God's going to keep His word? God has been gracious in giving us a sign of the covenant. And so God used a sign here as a reminder of His pledge. It was a a sign of His promise to mankind that never again would He destroy this earth with a great flood. Yes, there's lots of little local floods all over the place, but, but not one that covered the whole earth. And so the covenant here, notice, is universal. And it's seen with this great sign, which is a rainbow. Notice, the, given a picture of a rainbow on the, the screen here, Hopefully you know a, a rainbow, you know, light being refracted within the water causes all those different colors coming out in the rainbow. But uh, as, it, as it arched over the horizon, it formed an all-embracing sign of God's faithfulness. That rainbow is a sign of God's faithfulness. Every time you see one of those, you should remember God and remember God's covenants. Remember His faithfulness to you. And it's interesting, the word bow in our Bibles here, bow is the same word that was used for a just a regular battle bow that shot arrows. Same word. And it's like God's he, He's doing that on purpose because He's saying, I'm hanging up my battle bow. I'm hanging it up for all of you to see, and I'm saying I'm never using it again. Isn't it interesting? It's kind of shaped like a bow and arrow, isn't it? Right. So God's hanging up his battle bow to be this sign of peace. It's that everlasting reminder to us. One commentator is, I found him helpful as he elaborates on this. Here's what he said, quote, uh, if you can go back to that quote, uh, quote, it says this, they accept it, they accept it as a sign that God has no pleasure in destruction. 
that he does not give way to moods, that he does not always chide, that if weeping may endure for a night, joy is sure to follow. If anyone is under a cloud leading a joyless, heartless life, if anyone has much apparent reason to suppose that God has given him up to catastrophe and lets things run as they may, there is some satisfaction in reading this natural emblem and recognizing that without the cloud, nay, without the cloud breaking into heavy sweeping rains, there cannot be the bow. And that no cloud of God's sending is permanent, but will one day give place to unclouded joy. End quote. Let the rainbow always be a sign of God's covenant to us. It was a sign to all flesh. It's a token of God's pledge to mankind. It's a sign of His grace. So the main point of the section here is that God's covenant now is turning from judgment to grace. Remember that little that phrase or sentence I told you? Always remember, when you see God's judgment, what do you look for? You see God's judgment, look for His grace. And here again, we've just ended a horrible judgment, and we see God's grace. And so the emblem of the bow was the sign of the covenant. It was serving to remind all the participants that they had stipulations to keep. There's things that God wanted them to do. So here's God, by the way, who is omniscient, knows all things. And what is he doing? He's giving this perpetual reminder to himself. Not really, (laughs) because he doesn't forget anything. But he's saying, yes, every time I see this, it's a reminder to me, and it's a reminder to you. I'm not going to flood the world again. You Notice in verses 15 and 16, the use of I will remember shows up here again, just as it did at the beginning of chapter 8. God says, I will remember. it's, It's recalling that usage where God remembered Noah. That verb remember is used frequently here to describe God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. It's not that God forgets them, but He wants you to know that He remembers them. He is a God who makes promises and He keeps His promises. Praise God for that. And so within this whole context of the flood narrative, don't lose sight of the big picture. The message at the conclusion here is one of peace and preservation. The previous section has been one of judgment. Uh, We we had covenant treaties, by the way, and are interesting things, especially back in Moses' days. Covenant treaties were often made after wars uh, in order to ensure that there would be peace. So you have these warring parties coming together, making peace treaties. Hopefully they wouldn't attack each other again. But God would definitely judge sin here. We see that. But he also made a covenant of peace with the survivors of the judgment. His covenant of peace would reign over this new era. By the way, in in which mankind had responsibility as well. What's mankind's responsibility? They're to take life seriously. And we could word... uh, the idea this way, that mankind is responsible here to preserve life. 
And by preserving life, that means mankind is to produce life as well as protect life. Mankind is to do both of those, protect and produce life. And because they are regularly reminded here that life is precious to God, why should we produce and protect life? Because we're in God's image. God is a God who produces life and protects life. Therefore, you and I are to do the same. That's the point of the passage. So the value and the dignity of human life is derived from God, the Creator, and is rooted here in the fact that all human beings have been created in God's image. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your class or how old you are or if you're disabled or so-called healthy or whatever it might be. You have value. Equal value in God's eyes. So it's rooted here that all human beings are created in God's image. And so as stewards of the life that God has given, then what are we to do? We're to uphold the the sanctity of life from conception to the grave. And so ending somebody's life and then, because you think, uh, or somebody else thinks, you're relieving suffering or the inconvenience of some mother who you know, doesn't want a disabled child or, or whatever it might be, that, that's unjustifiable. It's unjustifiable. It violates God's clearly divine moral order. Suffering should bring us not to end life prematurely. But we are to entrust those people to God. We are to be faithful to God no matter what befalls us or those whom we love. Be faithful. We can find strength and ultimate hope in Christ. By the way, He's the one who has ultimately conquered death. He's the one, in Hebrews says, He can sympathize with our weaknesses in our human suffering. And so based on God's love, Christians are to extend self-giving compassion. We're to care for those who are suffering. We're to care for the vulnerable, the most vulnerable ones being children in the womb. So, whether they're unborn or born, whether they're young or old, we are to have compassion and care for all life. So may God enable you and me preserve life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. As you revealed yourself to be here, that you are a God who has high value on life. Yes, (laughs) you bring great judgment on sin. Sin must be punished, but we're also thankful that we can see here in this context that you are a creator who produces life and preserves life. Therefore, since we are made in your image, we are also to preserve life. May we understand these truths and may we live them out. May we have great compassion and care for suffering and vulnerable people, all people, no matter what their age might be, the unborn and the born, the young or the old, May we help our government to see what reality is 
That we help them to see the sanctity of human life. May we be wise stewards of your creation as well, and we're thankful you've given us dominion over all of it. May we be wise stewards of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.